Uh, good morning, everybody. Oh, thank you for that. I needed it. Uh, I encourage you, uh, particularly since this is the beginning of the New Testament series, um, you know, there's been a, a few people in our church, each week they have saved these as we've gone through the, the Old Testament, and they have saved these as a, a recollection and as something that they refer back to, um, to look back over the overview of the Old Testament books. And since this is the, the very first week, um, I, I'd encourage you, you know, some uh, people even have come up with the idea of maybe laminating them and using them as placemats and then talking about them at the dinner table with their kids or with their spouses or with their friends and just kind of going back over and, and just, this is a lot of information to take in, isn't it? You know, and so uh, I, I just want to encourage you, um, if you haven't thought about that, to, to really do that. Um, we just try to provide a tool for you, so we hope you'll take advantage of it. Um, Matthew is the first of four New Testament books about Jesus. And um, uh, like any collection of stories about one person, each version is different. And there's something unique enough about Matthew's story to inspire Christian leaders long ago to put his ahead all of the others in the New Testament. This is the most Jewish gospel of all four Gospels. And it was written to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah that the prophets said was coming. I don't know about you, but I really am excited to be in the New Testament. And I don't want to try to show favorites of God's word, some over others, but you know, it kind of gets hard week after week to try to preach about what the prophets were saying and about how they were weeping and how God was like pretty upset, but that God still said, but I'll still have compassion on you. I'll still be faithful to you. I'll still follow through with my promise, that covenant of bringing a messianic king from his father Abraham and from King David. And so, I got to tell you, it's been a struggle to try to figure out, well, what do you hit on? Even, even though there's 13 chapters that, you know, I could choose from this week because it's part one, and next week we'll, we'll go into part two, but still, what do you hit on? Chapter one starts off the lineage of Jesus. So important and, and so powerful for a Jewish audience to be able, yeah, that's right. That's, that's where we came from. And then you go on and you see about all the, the, the prophetic answers to how Jesus was born, his name, his place, the circumstances, so many different prophecies that were fulfilled just within there. And then we, we get on in and we, we learn more and then we get to see, we jump up to chapter four and we see, oh, Jesus' temptation. And it's after that temptation in chapter four where then it says he starts his ministry. And then in this video, I mean, man, there was so much to go over, but I gotta tell you, uh, I tried to focus in and um, I tried to listen to what I thought God wanted to be shared today. 
And so uh, I'm just going with the Beatitudes. Jesus uh, started his ministry. And if you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, um, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is preaching in Galilee. And in, in verse 12, it says this, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he returned and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said from the prophet Isaiah. And then skip on down to verse 17. It says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Jesus began to preach. And look what he preaches. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Sound familiar? John the Baptist. That's what John the Baptist was preaching. And when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he's like, okay, let's go. And so he starts off, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he goes on and talks about how he's meeting with the four different fishermen and he goes and recruits them and boom, they leave their father's boats and, and nets and they come and join him. And then all of a sudden it says he preaches throughout all of Galilee through the rest of that chapter four. And then it, it talks about, we get to chapter five. And um, man, I'm, I'm getting myself so far ahead of where I was at in my notes. But uh, I'm just going to come back to here. More than any other gospel, Matthew is the one who zeroes in on exactly what the good news is. Because he concentrates on the words that Jesus spoke. And I thought, what better way for us to get started? Let's look right at Jesus' words. Jesus had words of preaching and of teaching, two separate things. He had words of motivation, words of comfort, and yes, Jesus had words of accusation. In Matthew, we're not going to find um, as much dramatic action as we would discover when, when we get into the book of Mark. And there's not as many spotlights on compassion in the book of Matthew as we will see in the Gospel of Luke. Even there's not as much proof of the deity of Jesus compared to that that's found in the Gospel of John. But in Matthew, this book is the book in which we find the most complete record of what Jesus taught. And it's in Matthew where we'll learn how Jesus' teachings grow out of the Old Testament scriptures. Author Stephen Miller writes this, Reading Matthew is as close as any of us get to finding a soft clump of grass on a Galilean hillside and sitting down to listen with thousands of others while Jesus teaches us as though we alone are with him. Man, I like that. So this morning, that's, that's what I'm going to try to do with you. Um, as we look at chapter 5, uh, I want you to get uh, a feel as if you are eagerly waiting for Jesus to teach you this morning. 
It's not me. It's Jesus. And please don't get confused by thinking I've got some kind of Messiah complex, okay, uh, and, and that I'm comparing myself to Jesus. Um, in fact, uh, just the opposite is true. I want to read Jesus' words and let God's Spirit speak to you this morning. My hope is that the Holy Spirit speaks to you every time we gather, but especially now that we are not anticipating the Messianic King, but the fact that He has come. The Messianic King that was promised to King David has arrived. We've made it through all 39 Old Testament books. I don't know if you've noticed these over here, but these are, these are new. And uh, I'm so thankful for Justin to, to get these made and Stephen Vaughn helping us out and, and for Justin and Jordan, his daughter, to be putting these up late last night because we always want to keep this at the forefront. We've done this for the past year. Here's where we're looking at now on this side as we go through in the New Testament. going to put up the slide or if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 10. When Jesus saw the crowds he went up on the mountain and after he sat down his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them saying blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in hearts, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Man, you know, when I was a brand new Christian, I didn't know where to start reading the Bible, and so I, I just started reading to the book of Matthew. I was told to start in the New Testament, and I thought I'm just going to read it all the way straight through. Uh, I thought it was in chronological order, which it's not. Um, you know, the, the Gospel of Mark was written anywhere from, some people say, five to 15 years before Matthew was compiled. But um, I started reading, and when I got to here, believe it or not, I was one of those guys, I, I don't know what I'm doing here, I'm just so new in the faith, and I'm reading through this, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, I just graduated from high school, and I came to verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And guess what? Because I didn't have a correct understanding of Scripture, I thought, okay, God's speaking to me. I'm supposed to be a police officer. I, I did. I went through the police academy at a junior college, 12 units. I passed. It's a good thing I'm not a police officer today. <laughs> 
It is. You, you, you wouldn't want me going around with a gun in my hand. Okay? I would shoot my foot, okay? Or I would accidentally shoot somebody else. But um, I, it's, it's a joke. I'm the only, Shirley and I are the only ones in our life group who do not own a gun, okay? I mean, and we have a large life group, all right? Um, but, uh, you know, I was just reading that, and, and I didn't know what this was, what it meant. And as I'm unpacking it, it just says, with Jesus' announcement that the kingdom was near, back in chapter 4, remember? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. People were naturally asking, well, how do I qualify to be in this kingdom? I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, I, I want in. And if I'm hearing Jesus talking to me, I say, oh, the kingdom's near? Okay, well, what's it take? What, what's the membership rate? Okay, what are the dues? What, what tasks or actions do I have to do to, to get in there? And uh, Jesus said that God's kingdom is organized differently from worldly kingdoms. In the kingdom of heaven, wealth and power and authority are unimportant. Kingdom people seek different blessings and benefits. And uh, they have different attitudes. Uh, I took just the, the title of the Upside Down Kingdom right from the video, and it's right there on your sheet. In little print, you can see the little circle, Upside Down Kingdom. And I just thought that maybe God wanted me to challenge us today with that thought. The multitudes of crowds consisted of the people Jesus just mentioned back in chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And they comprised a, a larger group than the disciples. And the disciples were not just the 12, but many others who followed Jesus and sought to learn from him. Essentially, and you've heard this time and time again, but disciple means learner. But not all of them were genuine believers. You need to understand that distinction. Because for the longest time, I thought every time I saw that word disciple, that was a genuine believer. Not so. Um, let me just tell you to think of this. Um, Judas Iscariot. Just one example. There's more that we could get to if we had time. Where the Bible says, oh, they, they even believed it just meant they accepted that, but they, they did not put their trust in Jesus. They wanted it for selfish reasons. They thought that they could, wow, if I could capture this healing aspect, wow, I would be really special in town. And so they followed, but they weren't true believers. So when we see this term disciple, I don't want you jumping to that conclusion. Um, the term disciples in the Gospels is a large one that includes all who choose to follow Jesus for some time anyway. Um, and we can't equate believer in the New Testament sense with disciple in the Gospels. Customarily, rabbis or teachers, they sat down to instruct their disciples. And this posture implies Jesus' authority when we see right there that in verse 1, now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside 
and sat down. That is in there for a purpose. It was a recognition of authority, even though he's just beginning. The exact location of the mountain, quote-unquote, that Matthew referred to is unknown. It was probably uh, in in Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee, perhaps in Capernaum. Uh, There's no no real mountains nearby. I've been there. There's a lot of hills, but there's no real mountains when you think of of mountains. And the phrase, opening his mouth, he began to teach them, or uh, in the New uh, International Version, he began to teach them. It's a New Testament idiom. It's a a phrase that, that introduces an important utterance whenever it occurs. How many of you can remember the commercial, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. For all of you who are 30 and under, you just went, whoo, that was a Miramar, man, that was a flyover, all right? But that used to be so popular that when E.F. Hutton speaks, and all these people would kind of lean on in, because they'd want to hear what he had to say about the market and about finances, Well, guess what? When we see this, he opening his mouth, he began to teach. That's very similar mindset that that was trying to be communicated. And the Jews got that. The, The author was trying to make sure, okay, my audience is Jewish. They're gonna get this. And I don't want that to pass by us. There's some difference between preaching and teaching. And the gospel writers uh, use these terms all throughout. In Acts, we would see that in chapter 28. And, and also, you know, in other places as well. And generally, preaching involved a wider audience and teaching a narrower, more committed one. Now, that's generally how it was. But in this case, I believe that there was a pretty big audience And yet, Scripture tells us that he was teaching. Now, let's get to the subjects of of Jesus' kingdom. Their condition. This this whole thing describes the character of the kingdom's subjects and their rewards in the kingdom. Jesus described the character of, of those who will receive blessings in the kingdom as rewards from eight different perspectives. Eight different perspectives. He introduced each one with a pronouncement of blessedness. The English word beatitude comes from the Latin word for blessed. And uh, the Greek word that translated blessed refers to a happy condition. It describes a state not of inner feeling on the part of those to whom it is applied, but of blessedness from an ideal point of view in the judgment of others. Blessedness is happiness because of divine favor. Don't miss that. Because of divine favor. Not from anything that you or I can do. That's what we're referring to of blessed when we look at these. 
The four in each beatitude explains why the person is a blessed individual. You could probably say instead of four, or you just insert the word because. Because would be a great translation. They're blessed now because they will participate in the kingdom. The basis of each blessing is the fulfillment of something about the kingdom that God promised in the Old Testament. The Beatitudes, they they deal with four attitudes. One, toward ourselves. Uh, Another, toward our sins. Another attitude, toward God. And finally, the last attitude, toward the world. They proceed from the inside out. They start with attitudes and move to actions. They're opposed. So let's dig into this. The poor in spirits are those who recognize their natural unworthiness to stand in God's presence and who depend utterly on him for his mercy and grace. I want to repeat that. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their natural unworthiness to stand in God's presence and who utterly depend on him for his mercy and grace. They don't trust in their own goodness. They don't trust in their own possessions for God's acceptance. No. The Jews regarded material prosperity as an indication of divine approval. Since many of the blessings God had promised the righteous under the old, uh, old Covenant, they were all material. But the poor in spirit does not regard these things as signs of intrinsic righteousness, but confesses his or her total unworthiness. I'm going to stop there for a second. Um, when's the last time we've done that? When's the last time we've ever stopped and just really prostrated ourselves before the Lord and, and acknowledged that we are so unworthy and, and it doesn't matter what we have by way of possessions, by way of status, by way of anything else? The poor in spirit acknowledges his or her lack of personal righteousness and it describes those who have repented and are broken. Poverty in spirit is not speaking of weakness of character. But rather of a person's relationship with God. Don't miss that. Poverty in spirit, it's not speaking of weakness of character. It's speaking of a person's relationship with God. And such a person can have joy in his or her humility because an attitude of personal unworthiness is necessary to enter the kingdom. Now, I know in today's world of, oh, you know, self-esteem, self-esteem, we have to make sure that we're not hurting anybody's self-esteem. Listen, 
I can't stand up here in front of you and be a man of integrity if I don't tell you I've got major struggles. I've got huge areas that God is, it's not just like trying to put a little antiseptic on. God's not just like cutting a little something out. God's doing some major surgery. And I know I'm not the only one. So listen, I, I don't want to beat the sheep, but I'm trying also to make sure that we're not giving ourselves free passes, that we're not minimizing how much we need Jesus and all that he has to offer. You know, such a person can have joy in his or her humility because an attitude of personal unworthiness is necessary to enter the kingdom. The kingdom does not go to the material or wealthy only, but to those who admit their spiritual bankruptcy. I'm bankrupt. And, and every day, I need to come to Jesus. And I need to get filled. I also need to leave deposits. My sins. And leave my junk right there. And you know what? He doesn't hold it against me. This first and, and even the last of the Beatitudes give a reason for blessedness. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And all the rest of the Beatitudes fit right within that pericope. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn, they do so because they sense their spiritual bankruptcy. The Old Testament revealed that spiritual poverty results from sin. True repentance produces contrite tears more than jubilant rejoicing because the kingdom is near. That's what it's saying. It's this mourning over sin that resulted in personal and national humiliation that Jesus referred to here. The promised blessing in this beatitude is future comfort for those who now mourn. And the prophets connected the Messiah's appearing with the comfort of his people. All sorrow over personal and national humiliation because of sin will end when the king sets up his kingdom and the repentant enter into it. Verse 5, about the gentle or the meek. As a person is not only gentle in his or her dealings with, with others, but such a person is unpretentious. They're self-controlled. They're free from malice and vengefulness. This quality looks at a person's dealings with other people. And a person might acknowledge his or her spiritual bankruptcy and mourn because of sin, but to respond meekly when other people regard us as sinful is something else. I've shared before that meekness, we equate it with weakness just because it sounds like it, when in fact it is such the opposite. Jesus is given that description and that means strength under control. Strength under control. Man, I so desire that. 
because I see how often I, I don't keep it under control at all. Meekness then is that natural and appropriate expression of genuine humility toward others. And inheriting the promised land was the hope of the godly in Israel during the wilderness wanderings. Inheriting is the privilege of faithful heirs. Now, he or she can't inherit because of who that person is due to relationship with the one bestowing the inheritance. I think I said can't. They can. We do inherit that due to relationship with the one bestowing that inheritance. Inheriting is a concept that the apostles uh, wrote about and clarified throughout the epistles especially. In Colossians and Ephesians and Hebrews and, and Galatians and 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter, inheriting is not always the same as entering. Follow along with me. A, a person can enter another's house, for example, without inheriting it, right? I mean, I hope when I have guests over to my house and you enter into my house, you're not going, cool, I'm number one on the list, right? I'm going to get your house when uh, the Lord takes you home, right? It doesn't work like that. The Old Testament concept of inheriting involved not only entering but also becoming an owner of what one entered, so in this beatitude, Jesus was saying more than that the, weak, the meek will enter the kingdom. They will also enter into an inheritance and possess it. Folks, we're not just going into the kingdom. We are entering and possessing it. God is in control and he's in authority, but that is a reward that Jesus is spelling out here. The earth is what the meek can joyfully anticipate inheriting. And in verse six, as mentioned previously, Matthew always used the term righteousness in the sense of personal fidelity to God. That's personal fidelity to God and to his will. Therefore, the righteousness that the, the blessed hunger and thirst for is not salvation. It's a personal holiness. So don't get those two confused. Don't think this is a salvation passage. It is not. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with personal holiness. When believers express great regret or disappointment over their own sinfulness or over society's sinfulness and pray that God will send a revival to clean things up, they demonstrate a hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm very grateful to be involved with some faithfully committed men uh, who show up here on Thursday mornings. And it's our privilege to pray over the requests that we receive and to pray over our church and the leaders to pray over our community, to pray over each other's families, and to pray over the fact that God, God is the one who's in control. And when he please, guide us so individually we come to a personal holiness. 
and not blame somebody else for what isn't happening or what is happening that we don't like. The Messiah will establish righteousness in the world when he sets up his kingdom. Verse 7, the merciful. The merciful person forgives the guilty and has compassion on the needy and the suffering. Did you hear that? They forgive the guilty. They forgive them even though they're guilty. And they have compassion on the needy and those who are suffering. A meek person acknowledges to others that he or she is sinful, but a merciful person has compassion on others because they are sinful. Notice that Jesus did not uh, specify a situation or situations in which the merciful person uh, displays mercy because he or she is characteristically merciful. The, the promise applies in many different situations. The blessing of the merciful is that they will receive mercy from God. God did not mean that, that people can earn God's mercy for salvation by being merciful to others. I don't want you to catch that. I'm not saying that at all. But God will deal mercifully with people who have dealt mercifully with their fellow men. There are many Old Testament texts that speak of the Messiah dealing mercifully with the merciful. We looked at those, or at least if you were reading through the Old Testament while while we were preaching the different books, uh, Rick had hit on Isaiah and many different uh, chapters in there, and, and Zechariah. The pure in heart, verse 8. Those are the people who are single-minded in their devotion to God and therefore morally pure inwardly. Boy, that is not me. I wish it was. I wish I could even have the sin of pride to say that it was. But um, you know when you're in the presence of people who, who are pure in heart. Those are people I, I, I can't get enough of. Inner moral purity is an important theme in the book of Matthew and, and in the Old Testament. And likewise, freedom from hypocrisy is also prominent. Jesus probably implied both of those ideas. The pure in heart can look forward to seeing God in the person of the Messiah when he reigns on the earth. And the Messiah would be single-minded in his devotion to God and morally pure. Thus, there will be a correspondence and a fellowship between the king and those of his subjects who share his character purity in heart. No one has seen God in his pure essence without some type of filter. And the body of Jesus, that was a filter. Seeing God is a synonym for having intimate knowledge of and, and acquaintance with him. Get to the peacemakers and, and peacemakers likewise uh, uh, replicate the work of the Prince of Peace. Jesus, through his life and ministry, made peace between God and man and between man and man. 
right? Jesus is the one who brings the peace between us and God, but he's also the one who brings peace between us and each other. Isaiah's he's the one who predicted this of the Messiah in chapter 52. The true disciples of Jesus make peace as we herald the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel that being, brings people into a peaceful relationship with God and a peaceful relationship with each other. People who seek to make peace have, ah, man, they just behave as true sons and daughters of God. And the last one, verse 10, persecution. is as much a mark of discipleship as peacemaking. The world does not give up its hates and self-centered living easily, does it? Nope. This brings opposition on, on those who are disciples of Christ or, as we're going to come back to, of those who are true believers, not just mere professors of Jesus Christ. Righteous people, those who uh, conduct, whose conduct is right in God's eyes, become targets of unrighteousness. Each and every one of you, as a Christ follower, could share a personal story where you have felt that you have been attacked and persecuted in whatever way or form that has transpired. Jesus is the, the perfectly righteous one, suffered more than any of us. He suffered more than any of us. He suffered more than any other righteous person that you can think of has suffered. And even though Jesus' disciples suffered as, as we anticipate the kingdom, we can find joy in knowing that the kingdom will eventually be ours. It will provide a release from the persecution of God-haters when the man of sorrow reigns. The Beatitudes of the King indicate that the kingdom includes both physical and spiritual blessings. Don't miss that. And a careful study of the Beatitudes displays the fact that the kingdom is a physical, earthly kingdom with spiritual blessings founded on divine principles. And what I wanted to do now for our time is, is put up uh, this other slide so that you could just see a comparison of, of what I believe is Jesus' values that we see in the Beatitudes and the world's values. And here's the conflict. The conflict is, uh, you know, poor in spirit. Well, the world values pride, self-reliance, and independence. I don't need God. What do I need God for? Jesus' values, when we talked about mourning, blessed are those who mourn. Well, the world's values, hey, happiness at any cost, however I can achieve that. It doesn't matter to me. I'll do whatever it takes. I don't care about you because I want to be happy. I got to tell you something. I hear that from people all the time. I even hear that from Christians say, well, God just wants me to be happy, right? I'm going to tell you something. No. No, don't misuse and twist scripture around. We will have joy. We will find incredible happiness when we start living in the upside down kingdom way that Jesus shared. 
that's where happiness comes from. It doesn't come from how much money we have in the bank or how big our house is or what latest car we're driving or anything else. So please, don't, don't fool yourselves into thinking, well, God wants me happy. Nope. He wants our worship. He wants our faithfulness. He wants us to love him. When we do those things, it doesn't matter what our circumstances are. That's when we find that incredible peace, that joy. That's when the fruit of the Spirit is just like, wow. And so when I think of these beatitudes, you know, uh, uh, meekness, well, powerful or important, you know, for, oh, man, you're going to get walked all over. Man, you got to be strong. you got to stand up for yourself. Guess what? I'm not saying being a, a doormat. I'm not saying that. But you know what? You don't have to be that kind of person like the world says you should be. If Jesus tells us, hey, we can be meek, and, and when you're meek, you're going to be blessed, and, and you're going to be rewarded. Righteousness, instead of pursuing personal needs or being satisfied on, on how I live my life. I'm a good person. No, you're not. Not because I say that and not because I know you're not because I'm going to reveal anything if any of you have shared anything with me. But you're not because that's what God's word says. You're not a good person. We all have that disease of sin. So that's where the world starts sucking even Christians right on in there, right? And we get sucked into believing, I'm not pretty good. And we start playing the comparison game. Well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Right? No, we're worse. Because so-and-so doesn't even recognize that they're a sinner. We should. And so as we look through this mercy compared to self-righteous, what would I show mercy for? Man, I'm going to stomp all over you. One of the things I've hated about sports, I love sports. I hate all this stuff. Only the name on the back. They say, oh, yeah, it's the team name. No, it's not. It's about their name. Wow. If that's not self-righteous, if that's not somebody who's like all about me. No, it's not about me, and that's what Jesus said. I look at, you know, the pure in heart compared to someone who's sophisticated or deceptive. And they're going to kind of finagle and they're going to kind of try to do something. Oh, it's not overt. But boy, they just kind of like, well, I don't want people to really know that I really want this so bad that I'm just going to kind of position myself to get something as opposed to someone who's pure in heart. Then we look at Peacemaker. And I just said, competitive, aggressive, no concern for others. And the last one, persecuted, compared to desire popularity. Someone who's like, oh, don't, don't want to rock the boat. I don't want people to know that, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. Or, or, or they can know I'm a Christian, but I don't want them to think I'm that kind of Christian. You know, who's like, takes it seriously. Right? So we're going to stop for a second right here. And this is where we're going to end our time. 
And we're not going to go any farther. Um, I think, uh, I'm going to ask you, where do you see yourself? Where do you see yourself? Uh, and I'm not talking about the left side. Look at the right side. What area or areas is God speaking into your heart right now? See, I'm not the Holy Spirit. Praise God. But I know the Holy Spirit's working in each of your hearts if you're receptive to him. I know that there's been something up there that just went bing, 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 bing. And you're like, ooh, oh. can we get on to the next one, please? Can you skip that one? Nope. And so I'm just going to ask, we're going to take some time. Because we're going to be having a time of communion. And I would be, I would be so remiss as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if I just kind of say, yeah, well, okay, deal with this later on, you guys, and let's go. No, we deal with it now. It's between you and God. Because if there's something on that list that you know is true about you, how would it then be possible to then have communion with, with God? How can you participate in being able to remember the sacrifice that Jesus gave for you? See, that, that doesn't equate. So let's deal with it now. And I'm just going to ask right where you're at, you just deal with God. We're not going into communion yet. And you take care of things with God. You don't need to be looking at me with a blank stare. You don't need to be looking at anybody else. You don't need to be looking at your phone, figuring out what you're going to be doing later on today or what the scores are. You just look to the face of God. And repent. Just confess those things. And thank, thank him for his love and for his forgiveness and for his mercy. And thank him that he values what is so much more important than what the world does. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes. You get to do with it what you want. And um, after a couple minutes... I'll lead us into communion. Lord, I thank you that you hear us, each and every one of us. And Father, as we deal with areas that are painful and they're embarrassing, and uh, Lord, that we're shameful about I thank you so much that that's exactly what you desire to hear from us. That we can lay these things at the foot of the cross. The entire reason why you fulfilled your mission 
Jesus, as we just do some heart surgery, or as you do the heart surgery on us, Lord, would you help us to uh, tonight just leave and uh, just blow it off? But would you continually guide and direct us? We desire to be those people who are living in an upside-down kingdom because it's what you desire. So I pray this in your name, Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit that you sent. Amen.